Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, I'm Alex McLaren. I'm an actor and I've worked as a communications coach since 2002. Now so much business is being conducted remotely, the ways in which we talk, present, build relationships and connect is changing. In this podcast, I want to explore all those issues and prove to you that no matter who you are, you can talk to anyone. Hello and welcome to You Can Talk to Anyone, the podcast where we open the bonnet on our communications engine. I'm Alex McLaren. And I'm Tom Solinsky. And uh, this week I wanted to talk about fags and booze and drugs, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, okay, so first of all, um, all of this stuff is really contextually dependent on a whole load of complicated things um, and not necessarily totally universal, but... We're sitting here, you and I, in central London, and uh, we're both British. And so all of these have been questions with meanings all our life for the way we socialise and connect with others. So let's start by fessing up. Um, I am going to list all of the uh, <laughs> mood alterants that I have tried, Tom. Okay. Um, and, uh, and even to do so, I'm kind of conscious that some people will be thinking, are you out of your mind? This is not something you should do in public. Some people will be thinking, oh, this all sounds rather tame and timid. Um, <laughs> so I, um, I grew up in a household where with my, on Sundays, my parents would pour us a little bit of wine and top it up with water when we were teenagers at Sunday lunch. Okay. So um, I, I like, uh, it's, a, it's a part of my life is to drink alcohol. I do sound a little bit like that. <laughs> who was that awful judge in America who said, I like beer when he was at his uh, hearing? Kavanaugh. Uh, Kavanaugh, yeah. yeah, okay. yeah. Um, so, um, and that has been always been part of the conversational culture of my family life and ever since. We were also, because we were a Catholic family, my parents would give up booze during Lent. And I have occasionally, and I do that sometimes, not, not for religious reasons, I sometimes just have time off, mm. um, all kind of mood alterants. So that has always been part of it. Um, I smoked cigarettes for a while. Was I that remember. smoking cigarettes when we met? Uh, Rollies. Yeah, okay. So now that began because I was in a play and I was suddenly required to do so in, in, in character, yeah. would you believe? That was when I was about 19, 20. So I'd left home. I think it would not have been okay to smoke at home. There were no smokers in my family. I don't know about yours. But um, although, no, occasionally when I was very young, I think my father would occasionally smoke a pipe <laughs> in, in the manner of bearded 70s folk musicians, yes. which for a while he was. Um, and uh, but, but also his family, his mother 
and his sister, actually, when he was a teenager, both died of throat-related cancers. Mm. Um, and his mother was a very heavy smoker. So I think in the 60s, I don't know how closely they would have drawn the connection, but I think we would certainly have said that his sister was probably, it was, it was a passive smoking experience, I think, probably, that led her to being so sick. So I think that led to not a... Um, and not a heavy kind of moral sort of pressure about smoking. Um, but I think it was kind of in the air. So maybe that stopped me. I wouldn't have investigated it. Um, but then when I was in a play, I was so committed to being an artist. Give me the <laughs> thing that will kill me and I'll, I'll take it. So that, that went on for about sort of 15 years. Um, How did you stop? Um, okay. <laughs> I was trying to get fit. I was in a show. I was doing Shakespeare and I was trying to get in shape for it. And I was going to the swimming pool near my flat. Um, and, uh, and what I would do is I'd get up in the morning and I would roll a golden Virginia and I would smoke it on the way to the pool <laughs> and then I would try and get fit. And then I would leave the pool and I'd roll a golden Virginia and smoke it out sitting outside the uh, coffee shop at Marylebone station. And I remember during the second of these two cigarettes feeling incredibly woozy and dazed and like I was actually going to faint um so i had a kind of i, I kind of thought no this is it's just not good for me i should probably stop anyway but that was the thing that tipped me over and i remember discussing this with my older brother about a week later and uh and he said oh had you had any breakfast <laughs> <laughs> and i realized i hadn't he said yeah you probably had quite low blood sugar so i'd given up cigarettes for no good reason and uh, i still regret it uh, but no but, but, but i suppose there's always been this aspect and for most smokers in an era of data about the dangers you're always basically balancing the sort of the insanity of it with whatever the addiction or the habit or the uh, the pleasure of it is going to be on the other hand so that's me with booze and fags drugs I have tried to get stoned mm. repeatedly, and it's never quite caught or mm. worked. And I don't know what. I, in fact, I don't really know enough about the uh, about how uh, marijuana and uh, what do they call what's the medical term? Because it's a big thing in America CBD? and elsewhere. CBD. Yes, yes, cannabinoids. Mm. I, I don't really know enough about the action of them to understand quite why that was the case for me in a way that it doesn't seem to have been for other people. There's a hilarious but, yeah. bit in the movie Go, <laughs> where our teenage or early twenties uh, heroine is desperately mm. trying to raise money, mm. uh, and the drug deal which she set up has gone wrong. So she's now at this party <laughs> passing off, I think, a paracetamol. Yes, uh, as speed. Or something and she's encouraging people they're really good if you take them with a lot of pot <laughs> like a lot of pot <laughs> wonderful I mean I, I, in, in any case that was one that never really tried and I wasn't really part of a kind of clubbing culture so I've also ease and whiz and mm. all of the others they have totally passed me by I have never tried I once went to a party the door opened and it, this tremendously very lovely friendly kind posh girl said Alex come in come upstairs would you like some Charlie and I was like well it's at least <laughs> seven o'clock I think I'm probably okay and I don't think I knew her well enough yeah. to, to want to jump in with that straight away and the moment passed I moved out of those circles. So uh, it may be that some of our listeners are thinking, oh, that's already sort of way beyond my mood alterance. I also want to just suddenly realize that I'm leaving out caffeine. Yes. Um, which uh, is a sort of, does have a kind of narcotic effect. And I, I'm, I find it very hard to not drink coffee. That's actually the one which uh, feels like it's the hardest to give up when I have a month off, which I sometimes do. So uh, that's me. I think there are two. I'll, I'll do them out in a minute, mm. but I think there are two different aspects here, which mm. it might be good to disentangle because no. they, they're, they're both about socializing, getting to know people, doing it together, doing it together. Yes. And so, on the one hand, there is the ritual. Yes. Would you like some tea? Yes. Let's go for a drink. Mm. 
uh, let's let's go outside for a fag. And then the other aspect is the, as you say, the mood alterance mm. that you will be to a small or possibly to a quite a large extent a different person mm. after two pints of beer mm. than you were before you had them. Or half a pint. Or, or one, one pint. pint. Yes. Four different people over the course of that yeah. hour and a half. Yeah, that's true. I, it's funny. I also think that the third dimension is the the, the sharing of the experience of changing <laughs> because of what you're of what you're doing together. Like I suppose um, a, a group of people who've got up very early to do physical work won't do it, particularly in the UK, guys, without having a cup of tea. And in <laughs> yes. my case, I mean, it's funny the, the ritual in my. I suppose when, we, when I was a, when I was living at home with my parents, we would all go down and people would make pots of tea at the Arga. Um, in my Family life now, it always begins at the crack of dawn or sometimes before that with early morning tea, which Zoe makes every time. Not because I'm bone idle, but because I can never get it right for her. She's unbelievably <laughs> fussy. And so I get a free ride as far as early morning tea is concerned. Actually, it, she won't listen to this, but if she does, I mean, you know that it's not like that every day. Some days I do it. Um, but there's, there's the doing of those, of, of, of the going through that process together, I think is, but in fact, for some of the mood alterants, I guess, like we're getting stoned together and handing round a spliff, which is shared yes. in the way that cigarettes seldom are, um, uh, is, uh, is, is different as well. Uh, so if you want my um, CV, yeah, come on. it's not dissimilar to yours. Right. Uh, yeah, my parents would let us have uh, a little glass of wine if mm. everyone else was having it. Like I think most people, when you're little, it tastes horrible <laughs> and you don't understand what the grown-ups are doing and then you gradually uh, develop a taste for it. Mm. Uh, cigarettes I was never tempted by. Mm. Um, my dad was a GP and he remembers that shift in thinking coming about right. where why are people suddenly dying of lung cancer? What right. is causing this epidemic? We have no idea. Mm. And then over quite a short space of time, cigarettes, which no one had thought could possibly be the culprit, which sounds insane to us, but that was the, the case, being identified as the culprits. And he quit. I think he'd been smoking. Oh, right. So he'd been a smoker. Sorry, yeah. I didn't get that. He, he'd been a smoker. I think he'd been a kind of smoker just because that's what everybody was. Yeah. He didn't have any particular enthusiasm for it. My mum even less so. Mm. Uh, and uh, I think she'd already quit just because she didn't like it. Mm. But my dad had been quite a significant smoker. Mm read the research and went, no, this is very bad, and stopped. Oh, it's very funny. In the 40s, you can see adverts saying, your doctor recommends Craven <laughs> <Yes>. A. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of, which, I mean, is absolutely mortifying, I suppose, to those doctors who were part of that generation. Okay, so that's, I know it's, it did, did suddenly occur to me that kind of the history of that within our families, I think, may have quite a strong influence on our choices, even if there isn't a kind of a clear ban on it, like alcohol among Muslims, for example. Um, that, so my grandparents, I learned, <laughs> my mother's parents, um, were also smokers when, but long before I knew them and it was the, their children that said you should stop this and so they did and then for, for about two years I thought it would make me interesting at parties <laughs> yes. if I smoked cigars uh, well I mean uh, you weren't far wrong Tom but <laughs> So for a while, I had a little humidor uh, and uh, various devices to uh, preserve, maintain, cut and enjoy cigars. And then the smoking ban came in. Yes. And then it seemed like a poor use of, of available resources. I didn't want to be stuck outside of the cold with the cigarette smokers. Yeah. And that's a kind of a sort of, that was partly an EU directive, partly, uh, I guess, uh, something that, I mean, all of the pubs, which were used to be full of smoke, cinemas yeah. as well. I guess yeah. that happened prior to Planes long ago. With yes. smoking and non-smoking. Oh, I remember, I, I am old enough to have been on a smoky, a plays with smokers at the back. 
Okay, what else, Tom? I mean, how That's much, um, I mean, how much uh, again, LSD have you done? Coffee, but uh, mm. I've just never been interested in mm. anything stronger. Yeah. Uh, I've been at parties when people have been passing around spliffs, as you say. I've always just, if it's come to me, just passed it straight on. Yes. So I'm, I've definitely inhaled some. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because how could you not? I've inhaled some just walking home through camp. Because <laughs> sometimes, how could you not? But I've never sorted out. And like you, it's never had a particular mm. effect on me. And I've just never been interested mm. in that as an experience. However, mm. in what might be regarded as hypocritical, but I can defend, mm. I am an ardent proponent of legalization or decriminalization i always i'm slightly confused about what the difference is but as far as i can tell all of the dangers mm. and all of the evils mm. of drug use are to do with it being illegal absolutely and almost mm. none of it is to do with these actually being dangerous substances yeah i mean i remember it being a big when i was about sort of 20 i think train spotting came out yeah. um uh, which was a kind of a sort of a window into a culture of heroin use and uh, my, my again forgive me everybody I, I don't want to to be to claim to be expert but it does look like a great way of treating heroin addicts is to basically give them heroin which yeah. they then take it's the uh, in a, in a safer much safer environment it's the it's the illegality of, uh, of yes. heroin, which makes it so dangerous. Even giving yeah. them methadone tends not to work uh, because, yeah. uh, A, methadone is just as addictive. Some people say more addictive. Yeah. Also, what drug addicts who are trying to get off heroin mm. tend to do, if you give them methadone, is sell the methadone mm. and buy heroin. Interesting. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. So we're already actually into kind of sort of a core part of why this is interesting to me as far as talking to other people, which is that we're in a, a conversation now in which potentially we could be taking quite strong positions one mm. way or another way uh, about the uh, about the advisability or not of experimenting with mood alterants. Um, and sometimes it can come with almost like a sort of a puritanical or a moral stance, you know. That, yes. Uh, you know, for example, okay, so one of my brothers has stopped drinking completely um, and we saw the process of him making that change and it for him had an absolutely colossal benefit so if you have been uh, a witness to addiction to alcohol and alcoholism um, then you may very well have a very different perspective on the kind of the lightheartedness with which people pop open bottles of champagne or sort of rush to the bar for three more pints of beer um, and so uh, i think that that emotional relationship to its place within our own lives which can be rather different from its place within the culture and what I think is definitely something which people listening to this should heed if no one's told them this before mm. is by all means, if it's a social event, if you're buying a round, we've had a whole episode on the rules of the round, uh, cool. if you're passing around drinks, ask somebody if they would like a drink. And then if they say no, thank you, Ooh. that is the end of the conversation. Oh, well, you don't have to interrogate is. them as to why. You don't have to pile social pressure on them to have a drink. You've asked the question and they've answered it. And 
the reason why not could be anything from just don't feel like it today. Not in the mood. To I have an enormous and incredibly painful history of alcoholism. And <laughs> just being here, watching all of you drinking is a... A, a strain for me and I would really prefer not to discuss it because we don't know each other terribly well absolutely and even if you do know people well you don't necessarily have a right to that what might be an extremely personal and painful story so they're they, they under no pressure to justify their choices as far as uh, their relationship with what are generally agreed socially acceptable or legal mood alterants on the other hand I do think I recall us discussing in a past episode in a situation, let's say, where you are going to someone else's place of work for a meeting mm. and they show you in and they say, would you like something to drink? Mm. The only appropriate answer is yes. <laughs> well, exactly. Um, and the point is, you don't, even if you leave a full glass on the table when you leave, uh, people aren't going to hold it against you. Uh, you just didn't get around to drinking it. There's a million reasons why you might do that. Water, tea, coffee. All of those things say yes to. Yeah. Um, because, <laughs> I mean, I remember once uh, uh, there was a... Uh, 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 a distant relation of uh, my dad. She was an interesting woman. She used to, she was socially very kind of sort of skilled and she used to run events. This was in her 60s. And so she would be kind of like a hostess with the mostess. And whenever anybody offered her a glass of wine, she would always say yes. And she, but she'd already scoped which plant pots to pour it into <laughs> so that she could get rid of it, so that she could have a glass to say yes to people with. And so many of those plants are now alcoholics. It's, uh, it's really a tragedy. People don't think about the, uh, the consequences. Of... Well, you can see them wilting and falling apart. There's a great scene in Tintin Flight 714 when that's how Captain Haddock disposes of his Sani Cola and it kills the plant he pours it on. Um, yeah. I, see, I suppose it's, 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 there is this, there are varied positions in different cultures. This is the point. British people are so obsessed with tea. Mm -hmm. I'm watching Ted Lasso at the moment, and Ted Lasso is an American soccer coach, and he can't understand why anybody wants to drink this revolting drink. But there's a lot of lighthearted comedy about him saying yes, or sometimes absolutely not, coffee or nothing. Um, so the, the, the meeting of those two different habitual relationships can be sometimes where there's some, uh, some scratchiness. They don't have um, electric kettles in American kitchens. Is this true? Yeah. Oh, and God. the reason is they don't make tea. Fools. <laughs> um, I think I've seen sort of miniature kettles in American... I don't think I've ever stayed in an American domestic house. If they want to boil water, they, they put a, a tea kettle on the stove. Right. And oh, yes, okay, way. and it whistles. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Well done, Americans. A bit more <laughs> of that, please. Um, uh, I, I think I'm, I'm very aware as well of the sort of, of the meeting of different dimensions of British culture when there are, for example, religious... Um, uh, bans on, on alcohol, for example. So I've got a friend who was raised Muslim and now isn't a practicing Muslim and he likes to go to the pub. And so, and that, that, so that's quite an interesting shift, you know, that, that it goes that way around. I think, I think in my experience, which is somewhat less Muslim than Nav's, um, his, um, my, the, the journey is from drinker to non-drinker rather than the other way around. So that's quite an interesting, an interesting shift. But it is a, it's very much a kind of a... It's treated like a social lubricant in a way. It kind of it can relax people initially, um, I'd say. And so I think that that's why when uh, we, uh, we we meet up and we're feeling kind of tired or stressed, we will. There, people will often reach to alcohol as a means of calming them down and and maybe making them be a bit less tense and inhibited even. It can enable people to make friends with each other more and have more fun. Uh, I'm, incidentally, I'm very interested in your alternative perspectives on this, of course, because <laughs> I'm speaking from the inside. Yeah, and that's the aspect of drinking that I've never really got. Mm. I like the taste of some alcoholic drinks, mm -hmm. particularly wines. 
I'm very happy to, on a lovely summer's day like this, mm. have a, a gin and tonic or a, mm. or a Pims, what could be nicer. Yeah. Uh, but going out with friends in order to drink, yes. <laughs> the, the purpose of the event being, yes, to catch up, but also to get drunk, mm. has never appealed to me. No. And I don't find drunkenness to be a pleasant experience. I do tend to try and stop drinking before I get drunk. Yes, and what I think we also know is, quite apart from it, the experience of being drunk, the experience of having drunks on your hands is extremely arduous <laughs> and, uh, and strenuous. I, I've been told, um, although I've not really seen it enough, is that being around somebody who's high on cocaine is even more abysmal I can than being around somebody. Imagine, who's yes. Um, and uh, so I can, I'm just very aware that when we're kind of we're, we're we, it, it is important, as you say, to allow people to make different choices under those circumstances, but. That I think is maybe at the heart of this, this, sometimes the resentment that people who would quite like to have this adventure uh, to be around people who they can can then come across as a killjoy, which of course is the last thing that they want to do. And of course, one of the things that we talk to people a lot about is confidence mm -hmm. and getting over stage fright or the more generalized kind of fear of oh, audience, yeah. people who have to give presentations, and especially if it's a big occasion, they have to give a speech at a conference. Mm -hmm. And it's very common to hear people talking about a bit of Dutch courage. Dutch courage. Well, interestingly, my parents both worked in orchestral music. You would not believe quite how drunk an orchestra... <laughs> an, a, 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 well, no, a, a philharmonic orchestra has often had... Well, it's certainly in the old days. It, this may have changed, but when I was a kid, when I was meeting my sort of friends of my parents who were orchestral musicians, particularly my mother would never dream of doing this. I think my father in his early days might have done. But they yeah, were I'm sort of now picturing Oliver Reed manhandling a bassoon. That is what it is like. <laughs> it's an incredibly <laughs> male culture and a very drunk culture. People yeah. will be drunk before they get to the performance and then they'd have two pints in the interval. And, um, and actually this is particularly relevant for high stakes, high stress situations. Orchestral music is uh, one of the fields in which the soloists often develop incredibly stressed relationships to their work, mm. and they take beta blockers, Tom. Uh, and it's extremely widespread in the world of classical music that if you are playing Mozart's violin concerto tonight, that uh, the, the pressure can really get to you, and beta blockers are sometimes considered to be a solution by people in those circumstances. Yeah. Oh, and, and of course, also quite a risky solution because it doesn't necessarily, it creates problems as well as solves them. Yeah, and I'm, I'm of the opinion that anything which will dull your reflexes, mm. which will slow your mental processes Always. down, anything like that is ultimately going to do you a disservice, even if at the moment that you take it, you feel, oh, this is so much better. Just what I need, yeah. exactly. It's funny, I, I was thinking about cigarettes right now and this is interesting because i think one of the mood alterants that cigarettes provided for me was the feeling of being in a secret slightly disreputable gang <laughs> <laughs> i mean there was there've been times when i remember once i was doing a temping job and there was a friend of mine the work was so boring we would be we would constantly be making eye contact across the room <laughs> come on let's go and have a and go outside just just simply to as a place to escape and it was kind of an excuse um i think sometimes Cigarettes in the culture often look like oh, this is what Humphrey Bogart does. Yeah. It's also a, a high status way to touch your own face. Yes, um, and uh, and so you, and you're, you're, you you feel like you're you're in a, a, a culture, a precedent culture yeah. of people. And it's just are, sort of generally soothing, isn't it? You know, anyone mm. with an oral fixation is going to find that uh, even if <laughs> yes. there is no a noticeable mood altering yeah. that takes place, just being able to take this tube and, as you say, yes. 
bring it to your lips yes. in a cool fashion yes. is going to be sort of reassuring. This is what I do when I'm chilling out, so yeah. I'm now chilling out. <laughs> yes. um, of course, it's like wearing two tight shoes simply so that you can take yeah. them off. I mean, you've created this sort of quite mild need. I have to say, I didn't find it particularly difficult to stop. Mm. So those of you who are thinking oh, this is so enjoyably self-destructive, but I actually don't want to kill myself with it. Um, trust me, it is very possible to quit it if you want to, um, and because the addiction is much milder than I'd say I'd find my addiction to caffeine was. Yeah, and I think a lot of people do find it's, just, it's the habit, mm. and especially before the smoking ban, it was the socialisation. Yes, it's the getting together with that gang. That was the hard thing, rather than the chemical addiction, mm. which I think, yeah, I think you can, you can get rid of in a few days. It's interesting. The, the, I, I, I say having never been addicted yes. myself. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I'm trying to think. You may be the last person that ever gave me a cigar, Tom. Maybe uh-huh. you're, you're stagnant. Um, but uh, no, the, uh, I, I would say that this is the one reason why this is interesting. I'm conscious that my world now is much more varied than it was when I was 17 and first beginning to, well, I could legally buy cigarettes or when I wanted to, or, or go to a pub and buy alcohol. Um, and it means that there are people who've got very varied relationships to these once upon a time perfectly thoughtless normal parts of mm. British life. Um, and so just like when I'm entertaining at my house with people coming around for dinner, I have to actually think, okay, there may be a range of different diets that I have to accommodate some for medical reasons, cultural reasons, all sorts of habits that I need to think more broadly about whether I'm getting something which works with everybody. And that means as well as offering people a bottle of wine, I have to have interesting rather than boring non-alcoholic alternatives. Um, I have an ashtray (laughs) in my house. Yeah. And I... What do you think of it? I have one on my patio. People people don't ask to use it. I think I think I always... uh, The the sending of people outside was uh, to to smoke was something that happened nationally all at once. And so... uh, uh, But I've always been quite militant that if people... If having a cigarette at my table was uh, an important part of a way that my guest relaxed, I would put up with the smell, which would take two days to clear. It doesn't happen often enough for it to be a big problem anyway. But uh, but just making sure that I accommodate um, everybody else's needs, um, provided that everybody else is happy for other people to say yes or no, um, seemed to me to be an important part of being a good host. If you've got any uh, thoughts about the various different mood alterants in your life, um, then please do get in touch with us and, uh, and let us know, particularly if, uh, if you've taken um, umbrage or you think our positions are ill-informed. That perspective is incredibly valuable to us, so we're really intrigued, particularly how uh, all the mood alterants that we have in our various different cultural backgrounds contribute to the social talking mm. to each other, um, uh, which is the point of the podcast. So if you're interested in the work that we do, which tends not to involve uh, an enormous amount of drug taking, but never say never, uh, then you can contact us. Uh, We do work with all sorts of organizations, big and small, on things like presentation skills, running better meetings, negotiating, and so on and so on. If there are themes you want us to tackle on the podcast, please drop me a line at alex at the-spontaneity-shop.com. Or I'm tom at the-spontaneity-shop.com. Or you can hit us up on Twitter at Spontaneity Shop. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Cheerio. You have been listening to You Can Talk to Anyone with Alex McLaren and Tom Solinsky. The producer for The Spontaneity Shop was Tom Solinsky. You Can Talk to Anyone is distributed exclusively by Acast. <laughs>